0: Welcome to Slayer Fest 98. I'm Kirsten
1: White. Adam Sass. Philip
2: Ellis. Um, Kimberly Ann Southwick.
0: And I'm Ian Carlos Crawford. Today we're here to recap Buffy Season 6. Uh, I'm happy to have you all with me. Um, so in Season 5, Dawn suddenly appeared as our beloved Slayer's sister. Glory came ripping through Sunnydale, looking for her key. Joyce Summers died. Spike declared his love for Buffy. Riley left on a helicopter. And in the end, our hero sacrificed herself to save the world. And that's what you missed on Glee. (laughs) (laughs) So I also stole that joke from Ryan Houlihan. He used that at our live show. Um, So then we got into season six. Buffy comes back from the dead. Uh, You all were on a lot of episodes this season through our discussion, which um, Adam had pointed out to me lasted a year and a half. and
1: <laughs> I have moved Adam, twice how many... since season six began. Yeah. Um, and not even like Adam, a little move, random moves, unexpected moves, like full leases expired. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, isn't that the best metaphor for full season six? Like that is how long <laughs> it felt watching it in real time. Oh, no. And the characters age, because they're like... 33 by the time season six <laughs>
0: <laughs> But yeah Adam and I had like A phone call like a few weeks ago and he was like Ian I have moved twice since you started This season I was like oh god you have!" I couldn't believe
1: it. There was a point Months ago where I was convinced He had because you know because Anthony Had been co-hosting for a bit and So I was like well I think they finished recording season six and then you were like so we're doing seeing red and I was like <laughs> anyway we're here yeah so we're here
0: now uh so uh season six I feel like a lot of people feel strongly about season six uh Marty Knoxon had taken over as showrunner while Joss was busy with like <laughs> 600 other projects um and I don't know that the blame completely falls on her for how like dark and disjointed it is because i do think season five while i still will argue i don't i never wanted season five to be the end because i didn't want the show to end with buffy dying it does feel very like they wrote it that it could be the end um and season six is kind of like oh we saved the world what now and you got to go from there and like our main character is dead uh you know and where do they go from there is that they save the world again and again until the show's over um, um the,
1: the 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 big bad each season kept escalating and then in season yes. 5 we had buffy defeat a god and then i feel like i i don't know if this has everyone said on this podcast or whatever but i knew my friends and i like as you know as we were watching this in college we were like well the big bad of season 6 is life yeah, yeah. it's just life being shitty um yeah and a lot and a lot to handle. And so that's, I think that's where you kind of go from there. How you get bigger than a God is just like dealing with the universe being against you from time to time.
3: And I do love a good, we save the world now, what story, because we don't get those very often. Usually the end is we did it, but getting the, we did it. What did it cost us is a, is a great take. Um, and, just as an aside, speaking of Marty Noxon, I don't know if it still is, but for a while, her Twitter bio was, I ruined Buffy and I'll ruin you too. Yeah, it still is. I love her so much for that. Like, If nothing else in the entire world, I will always love Marty Noxon for having that as her Twitter bio. Good for you.
0: Yeah, it's funny because I that, that was my next note that I was going to hit on, is that Marty Noxon, whose Twitter bio reads, I ruined Buffy and I'll ruin you too. <laughs> She said in a a Vulture interview, like vaguely recent in the last few years, um, I wanted to read the quote that she gave. I was so afraid that Buffy was going to be the height of my career and that I would never emerge fully as a creator myself. So it's been weirdly painful to go back and watch it because I was working so wholly to try to meld into the voice of Joss and this genre that was a little bit foreign to me because I was kind of a straight drama writer. I haven't revisited it very much. The parts of it that hold up, the parts of it hold up really well, and other parts of it are a little rickety. Uh, there were parts of season six where I feel we went too far. We pushed into some categories that almost felt sadistic, and that yeah. Buffy was volunteering for things that were beyond just bad choices, and were almost irresponsible for the character. I think that killing Tara. Cha- I think that killing Tara was, in retrospect, of all the people, did she have to die? I I feel like at the very least for that last point we probably all agree. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> How do we think it, like in, in like in a parallel universe like who could have died instead of Tara to trigger Willow's?
2: Xander. Xander, Xander. Xander? Xander. I was gonna sug- I was gonna suggest Xander too, but I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> is that just me like wishful thinking? <laughs>
3: No, but that would have had the same emotional impact, right? Because Xander yes. and Willow had been best friends since forever. So if you didn't have Willow and Tara get back together yet, so she didn't have that to fall back on, and Buffy was emotionally unavailable, losing Xander would, I feel like, have had the same effect on Willow. Um, I agree. And, you know, Xander, Xander could have been killed. Yeah. <laughs> Season
1: 7, they were obviously out of... Xander storylines yeah. um especially like imagine like after hell's bells where he's t- t- ruined Anya's life like that would be a much thornier everybody deals with this situation yeah. where like Buffy has grieved a friend Anya has grieved like a-, a former uh fiance um and then in a way like you had you kind of because again Willow's character arc in this season was a little bit could be read in a way that's. Um, you know, there's this former me and now there's this new me. And imagine like if it was Tara doing that sort of saves her at the end mm-hmm. moment that it's really like she has to kind of grieve for this former she part of her life that's gone away. And then Tara is this new part of her life going forward. It could be read that way. It could have been a lot easier and it wouldn't have had this kill your gaze sort of moment. But
3: yeah, and I is. think the grief aspect would have been more interesting because Buffy and Xander and the gang really never I mean as much as Tara was like the heart of whatever episode she was in always you did always kind of get the sense that Buffy and Xander didn't really connect with her. And so when she dies, you don't get you don't get intense mourning from them. They're like they they're immediately moving on to the next problem and if it had been Xander, then you could have had Buffy in this fog of grief and and in her own you know, I've just lost another pillar of my life, um, which would which would then give her, I don't know. Yeah, like the, the way that she emotionally or didn't emotionally react could have been done in interesting ways as well.
4: And can I just say, I I really, it never sat right with me, um, as, as you just said, Kirsten, that um, after Buffy, you know, after Tara was the only person that Buffy could confide in this season, especially, that we get like two seconds of a reaction from her when Tara dies, and then it's like moving on.
1: Yeah, yeah. Everyone is kind of when they react to Tara's death, like th- there is a moat. There there's a lot of like there isn't the huge hugeness of Joyce dying, um, mm-hmm. and everyone had a, such a enormous reaction to Joyce dying, and then there's Tara dying, and it just feels. That's another part of the trespass of the, of this story arc is that it just feels very like you're just exposing like how they're just sort of sorry it happened, yeah, but they're really far more concerned with like Willow spiraling out of control.
2: Yeah, with like the main characters of the show. So you know, you kill Fred Weasley, you don't kill Ron Weasley, you know, and right. unfortunately, in 2002, you don't kill one of the straight cishet male characters that are like the major characters in the show yeah Yeah. even if we prefer it
0: (laughs) hey i would not have preferred if xander died only because i don't know that the show would have been able to recover in a i don't know that the show would have been able to recover from their grief like i don't know that we would have been able to move on and i know a, a lot of you are not big fans of season seven but i don't know that we would have been able to get like a more the tone we get in the beginning of season seven, which I do really like, I don't know that we would have been able to get there if Xander had died. Like I, I think it could have been Tara leaves. Uh, I don't know. Maybe Xander does die, but he somehow comes back. I don't know. But like, I I don't know who I would have picked. Although half of me is like, maybe I could have been Giles, but I guess like then that would have been more Buffy's grief. Not. Yeah. Not Willow. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The problem is it's locked into, it has to be Willow. And really the two most important people to her are Xander and Tara. So
1: Yeah, yeah.
3: It's fine. We don't have to kill Xander.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, but also, like, I also wonder, like, you know, ha- losing someone to a shocking death moment is maybe not the only way to sort of tap into that storyline with Willow. Because yeah. a lot of that was her feeling so powerless for so long. And then this was her tapping into that. There's, there's a lot of the Willow, Dark Willow storyline that is about Um, self-interest and selfishness and Mm -hmm. and the seductiveness of power. So we don't necessarily have to have that moment that could have tipped her over, but that's for another writer's room. I I think it was a very very convenient way of writing
4: Willow into this sort of, um, you know, she's on this uh, absolute like revenge spree, she's off the deep end, she's off the wagon, she's, you know, using all this power uh, it was very convenient to write it where it's like, oh, she's, you know, um, incandescent with rage and with, with grief, uh, when actually, like, a much more natural way to do that would have been to just continue the story that she had earlier in the season where she was this gaslighting, controlling partner mm-hmm. of Tara, and to take that to a much, take you know, take that to its sort of logical, darker place, make her this sort of narcissistic abuser who cannot conceive that she's not right.
2: yeah. And she struggles with the the not using magic and then kind of finally, like, seems not to um, in some of those in-between episodes, which seems strange to me. I'm like, well, why aren't you trying to secretly use the magic just a little, you know? Mm.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, this sort of, like, you know, she knows best sort of thing, which is, you know. There
0: there There are a couple places for me where, so I actually remember when I watched it live in, I feel like people have the opposite reaction, but I think when I watched it live, it benefited from being engagement TV and not bingeable TV. Yeah. Because it didn't feel as relentless as it does when you're watching episodes Mm -hmm. back to back.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Because, you know, you had to wait a week. No matter what, you had to wait a week. So it was just like, okay, I can, like, let go. But, like, if you watch three episodes in a row, there's no... There's no three episodes in a row in season six where like someone isn't miserable and crying in the episode. Yeah, right. uh, um, and I just like it feels so relentless. Um, and I think this season has the messiest narrative of oh, all yeah. the seasons. And again, I know that a lot of people aren't big fans of season seven, and it does um doesn't do all the characters justice, but at least like you know what that narrative is, you know what I mean? um you know what they're going towards you know it's the first evil uh you know in that first episode when you see all the bad guys turn you know if you've been watching the show you know it's the first evil even if you don't know you know that that's the bad guy right like that shape-shifting thing is the bad guy that's what we're working towards okay
1: and this season
0: yes
1: to season seven villain
0: and i think kirsten you and i both said on the podcast and i don't know i i think other people might have said it too that i think this season could have benefited from not having Buffy come back at the end of the first episode.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. I remember somebody saying that.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I think that's one of the first missteps of this season is that uh, we don't. I, I mean, the Buffy bot's enjoyable to watch, right? Like, yeah. I think she, it, it, Sam Riegel, like sells it. She commits to being this like goofy robot, uh, and I think we could have gotten at, at least two episodes, two full episodes, if not more of them with the Buffy bot and them trying to, you know, fight whatever demons or whatever and not have it be, I, even with her coming back, I don't think we needed that weird biker gang demon group.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I, Cause I think, I, I think you, you all said it best where I, th- I think this, these final two seasons are definitely where it reveals that it would have been, um, that would, it would have benefited from a 2020 shorter season bingeable way of doing, yeah. uh, Help tv
2: yeah there are so there are a couple episodes in in season six where it feels very episode or i'm sorry villain of the week you know kind of like right. hearkening back to the very beginning where the trio's kind of just doing something so that they can do something big on the next episode rather than having like one villain control kind of you know the puppet strings of the villains of the entire episode and so those episodes i think fall a little flat and do feel like very fluffy
3: yeah, and I, I think being—I think that's such a good point because being locked into that twenty-two episode structure, um, it's challenging, right? It's challenging to sustain a narrative over that length of time to present a villain that's challenging enough that they deserve a season-long arc, but not so challenging that it's like, well, why wouldn't they just destroy them in the first episode? Which is kind of how I always felt about Glory. Like, that's a hard thing when a god is your villain. Like, how how did it take her twenty-two episodes to like? face off with them right um and that's that's always the challenge um and I think pulling back to season six as a whole like I'm, I'm very open about the fact that I do not enjoy this season it feels like punishment to watch there's so much suffering I'm such a mom that it hurts my heart to watch these characters that I care about struggle and no one's helping them um but it has some of my very favorite episodes of the, the series. Um, I love Tabby Larossa. I love is it normal again, where Buffy wakes up in the institution?
0: Yes. Oh my god, you love that episode, too. Oh, I oh love god. that episode. No. Yes.
1: Because
3: I felt like it asked <laughs> such interesting questions. Um it does, oh yeah, but then and- it like
1: ends on this like. It ends, like the final note it leaves us on is like, maybe it is all like fake. Yes, anything. that's what I love about oh it. Oh my god, no. <laughs> It's so gleefully
3: <laughs> undermining of the entire series.
1: That episode like spun the Inception top in my head and I haven't been able to stop it ever since I watched it.
2: <laughs> that's what I love about it. Oh, man. I have a question about when it aired. So I know it aired, because I looked it up, at 8 p.m. Eastern time. This season did, and that it had aired at that time previously. Is that when Buffy always aired, or were the earlier seasons on earlier, question mark?
0: No, it always aired then.
2: Okay, just wondering.
0: Yeah, because uh, it used to be when it was on WB, it would be 8 would be Buffy, and 9 would be Angel. And I think they still kept it, even when they were on different networks, like Angel was still on 9 at Tuesdays on Tuesdays.
2: Okay. Just because Joss talks about how this season is like darker and I was wondering, Oh, did they move it a little later because it got darker? Like, did it used to be something? I always imagined it was on in the afternoon in the earlier seasons for some reason, but that's because I didn't watch it like that. I watched it (laughs) on Netflix for the first time. So anyway.
0: (laughs) That's funny. Um, But so yeah, we get the, and I think the weird thing about the first third of the season is i mean like i said i think the season's a little messy but the first third of the season tries and i don't know that it gets there but it tries to balance the like fun buffy tone Mm -hmm. with the like absolute misery that is this season and like buffy coming back to life and i don't know like you know afterlife and flooded i i I, and even bargaining like all those first four episodes kind of aren't stand out at all to me um, mm-hmm. I don't think this, the season starts to stand out until we get to like life serial and then we get once more with feeling and tabulazza, yeah. which are very good episodes. Yeah. yeah. Um, like it you said, like... Kirsten, they're good standalone episodes, like they're just like fun to watch.
1: And they don't even feel like standalones, it feels like bargaining part one, two, three, four, five.
0: Right, yes. <laughs> um, and I don't know, I mean you guys were on for a lot of these episodes. Philip, I think you hosted co-hosted, did you co-host both Afterlife and Flooded?
4: Um, oh gosh I, 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 It was definitely from, Oh it was um Afterlife It was the one where she's like, Immediately after she's come back That
1: I was on for um, yeah, th- Think back to 2017 if you can
3: <laughs> 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 It was a more innocent time
0: It was, it really was uh, But so I mean We gotta talk about once more feeling I mean we gotta uh, I still, I, I think this is one of the best Buffy episodes Um, and Drew Greenberg told uh, Adam and I in the roundtable discussion that Joss had mostly done everything for the episode by the time they were doing the season. Right, Adam?
1: Right. No, because I mean, he had like during like the summer break between things like he had just kind of written all the me I mean, obviously he had to do the whole like music in the book and everything like that. And then uh, it was pretty much done. And then I think the only thing that was left to do was like, branch it into whatever timeline of the show it was going to end up in like post tabular awesome
0: um and i think he oh did he say this or did someone someone might have said this in our episode kim that they like that was all their budget was on once more with a feeling for the season like they oh used yeah most of their budget
2: i remember somebody uh, saying that
0: yeah uh which i mean does make sense because mm-hmm. the cinematography does feel like they they like, you can clearly tell they like went above and beyond what normal Buffy cinematography and like, you know, the filming and whatever. Uh, and
2: I had to pay all these I, people yeah. to sing because they talked,
1: yeah. right? Yeah. And dance, well, and they agree. were all
2: very good singers and dancers. So, yeah, in my yeah. opinion,
1: and, like, I wonder, like, because it went to UPN, so and UPN in 2001, famous for budgets, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, like, famously moneyed up. So maybe like there was a. I don't know, like, I don't don't really know in the canon of things, like, how, like, viewership successful Buffy had been, I mean, obviously we know it was a cult hit, but, like, I wonder if, because, like, at a certain point, like, if this was a modern show, I could see Netflix being like, "All right, well, the numbers say you should get six episodes now, and then you're done. Right, yeah.
0: i feel like netflix would be like mm, you're costing too much money you're canceled doesn't matter netflix <laughs> like, <we're that>. can't
1: <laughs> it drink. like they would just be like mm, i don't it's not you know it's not big bang theory so
0: doing great yeah. but we're gonna cancel you anyway <laughs> <laughs> no. uh and um so our carly rain carly lane who's a regular on the podcast i found she wrote a article for sci-fi about season six um and she said that life can be convoluted even for a slayer especially when that Slayer has been to heaven and back when Buffy made her return after dying in season five. It wasn't until the end of the show's third episode that she confessed to spite. She had been magically wrenched out of what she believed to be a happy afterlife and back into the hard, bright, violent reality, hell of reality. It was a devastating reveal, not just for what Buffy had lost, but what is signaled for the course of the season, which I hadn't really thought about that, that that's kind of, that's true that like once she reveals that that's the course for the season. It's like Buffy's depressed as hell and even even in the right in the musical she reveals through sarn to all of them that they pulled her out of heaven and that's just like that's the season right for the rest of the season and i think that's another thing that's weird for me is that's the rest of the season is like her depressed her kind of wanting to die and then we shift to it being willow's story um and i don't think we ever completely tie a bow on buffy's story but they just move on from it which I mean, is very true
4: to life, that's what being depressed is. You, you don't ever necessarily come to an end of being depressed, but you learn ways to, to manage and, and sort of, you know, to, to keep going. And I think even in season seven, uh, it's not as explicitly referenced, um, but it's kind of, that's always been, you know, one of the undertones to Buffy's story is that she isolates herself from her support network and that she's always felt the need to, you know, carry everything alone.
2: Well, they kind of also replace that conversation of her depression with her relationship with Spike. So the, you know, forbidden love slash whatever you want to call what goes on between them in this season. Um, She's sort of dealing with her depression through, um, you know, having sex with him and then trying to get on top of it by breaking up with him. So I think that that's that shift occurs
3: yeah because she's indul- she's she's letting herself in like not indulge indulge is the wrong word but but kind of giving herself up to her darkest most self-destructive impulses because you know when you're in that place anything that makes you feel right and so yeah her finally getting to the point where she was like no this isn't this isn't who I want to be you know this isn't what I want I think yeah that's that's her first step toward kind of like reclaiming normalcy I don't know moving toward a healthier place of engaging with her feelings and engaging with the world around her so I agree like I do think it's interesting that there isn't like this epiphany moment I mean there sort of is at the very end where you know she's protecting Dawn and she realizes she doesn't want the world to end she wants to live um but but yeah I think it's a slow process which which feels authentic like as much as as much as I do not enjoy this season, I think they did a lot of really interesting things with it. And it doesn't feel um, like I, I I contrast Buffy's emotional journey through this season to Xander and what's more with feeling, who having grown up in Sunnydale and fought alongside the Slayer for how many years is like, oh, could be right. fun to summon this demon. <laughs> and then after, when several people have died, he's like, oh yeah, I, I shouldn't have done that. And they're like, oh, Xander. And they move on, right? And like, as funny as it is, and as great as episode it is, it is a little bit like, um, Xander, you have a body count. And nobody ever addresses it. So the fact that Buffy's journey through this season is sort of so kind of stop and start. Self destructive, maybe I'm going to be able to reclaim myself. And like, I think the best summary of it is when Giles comes back and Buffy's telling him everything that's happened and they just start laughing and they can't stop laughing. Cause like, you're expecting to be like, you did what with Spike? But instead, they just, they just break down at the absurdity of it. Because when you're finally in a place where you can begin healing, these things that when you were in them felt like the darkest, bleakest, worst times they can kind of take on that sheen of absurdity once you have some distance from it. And so I think there was a lot of emotional honesty in this season for all its flaws um, that I appreciate. I just, you know, could have been executed better. They made a lot of story decisions that that I that I don't like. Um, But yeah, it, it is a really, really interesting emotional journey for Buffy. And, and I think, Philip, you're the one who said that You know, you you liked that it didn't have a
2: resolution, that it kind of carried on in subtle ways into season seven. And I agree. I think one of the reasons that, uh, one of the things that adds to the effectiveness of the emotional journey is that the acting is so freaking good this season. So So no matter what they're given, like they all kill it. Uh, And they're really, they really are their characters. Not that they're not previously, but like, you know, I feel like this season, like, you know, you, you can just tell that they, they really have inhabited these people and they're, it's like, they're not even acting like they just are the characters. Like that's how good the acting is. Yeah. I yeah, think.
0: I, I would agree with that. I, go ahead, Adam.
1: No, no, I mean, I, it's, I mean, it's one of these things where like, it is a very authentic depiction of depression and struggling with listlessness and struggling with purpose and um, self-destructive tendencies. Authentic as it may be, that's it's <laughs> depression is nobody's favorite thing to like watch on a screen or experience in real life. So it's like it's one of those things where, like, it's super authentic. Of course, this is like nobody's favorite season because it is yeah. probably so authentic.
3: Somebody on Twitter the other day listed season
2: six as their favorite season. And I was like, what is wrong with you? Um,
1: <laughs> I like saying the opposite sometimes. People just like saying the opposite. I like it's- to
2: say that I don't like the Beatles, everyone hates that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I mean if season six is your favorite season
4: of Buffy, you probably just like can't stop talking about Fleabag either. <laughs> <laughs>
2: or or uh, Harry yeah. Potter 5 is your favorite Harry Potter. That's when he's hey, terrible. That
1: is my favorite Harry Potter. Yeah, game. No. My favorite dog.
2: No, yeah. no, he's the worst. There's so
1: much house cleaning. Don't you love it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> anyway, sorry. But yes, a lot of people I have I've seen a lot of people i some like twitter friends i remember were like if you don't like season six it's because you've like never been depressed and i was like excuse me
1: (laughs) internet talk
0: yeah (laughs) like I was like i am going through that season now on my podcast and it is bleak i feel like i have nothing new to say and yes i might have been you know depressed a few
1: times in my life you've never been depressed yeah
2: there's always like (laughs) the difference between whether something's good and whether we like something too so a lot of people maybe conflate those so i think there are good episodes in this season maybe some of the best episodes but it doesn't mean that we have to like the season
3: yeah something can be incredibly good and not enjoyable
0: like Mm -hmm. the body that's how i feel about the body i think it is one of the best episodes of television, but it's not 100%. anywhere near my favorite episode of Buffy. Because Yeah,
3: you're never like, oh, just... you know what I want to watch today? I want to watch The Body.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> I'm in the, 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 the movie.
1: Movie. Let's put The Body on Yeah.
0: Like, I am never putting that episode on, like... Unless it's, I'm going through the show with someone. Even then I'm like, oh, do I have to watch with them? <laughs>
4: it's like when you're, you know, when you're report, blocking and reporting content online and it's like, I am in this picture and I do not like it. And that's what season six is <laughs> you know, Especially right now, you know, I was living my best life in the city and now I am in quarantine in my childhood bedroom, literally going through the motions Every single night, the same occasion.
1: Ah, and it's like, I'm currently in my family's home. I'm currently in my family's home in my closet because that's the only way to record stuff. It has been a journey. <laughs> so, yeah.
0: All three gay men in this podcast are quarantined with their parents. <laughs>
1: And so it's like, yeah, Give me if I don't want to
4: watch season six and have my life just be shown to me. Except at least puppies are able to go out and have sex with questionable men.
2: <laughs> <Phillip>.
4: <laughs> um,
0: but so then we kind of, we need to talk about the trio. I feel mm-hmm. like we need to talk about them. So anyway. season, season six guest Joanna Robinson wrote for Vanity Fair, a piece about season six. And I thought what she wrote about the trio was really accurate. She said um, about like their plan, what ensues and eventually dovetails into the weaker dark willow hooked on magic conclusion is a frightening look into the entitled misogynistic rhetoric that rose to the surface during the Gamergate culture wars of 2014 and has seemingly infiltrated everything else. The 2016 presidential election included um, the, I think that the trio We've said this so many times. I mean, Sam Mag said this on our episode for Villains. Like they're the guys that harass her on Twitter. Um, David Vasquez said earlier in the season they're the guys leaving reviews for Cap- negative reviews for Captain Marvel without even having seen it. Um, they still feel weirdly relevant. I it's weird to say these like disgusting, like human characters were ahead of their time, but it almost feels like they were, even though like those nerds still existed. It's just the internet wasn't as didn't make it everything so widely available to them. As it does now. Imagine oh. if Warren
4: had had white like broadband at at the time, he would have
0: been oh. even
4: worse.
2: Yep. He
0: he would he would have like a bajillion followers on Twitter, and he'd be like the head of GamerGate.
2: It's funny because their nerdness is something that is mocked a lot in the show. Like yeah. I'm thinking of uh, yeah, I think it's Spike like threatening to break open the 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 Boba Fett. He keeps calling him yeah. Mister Fett, which is great. Anyway, um, <laughs> like. A lot of that stuff is comic relief, but they're so despicable at the same time. I'm like, should I, like, you know, this is, oh, this is how they get that way because we laugh at them like this.
1: (laughs) There was that, but I think another thing that I think is very, I I think this came up in an earlier episode, but like the thing that's, that's most insidious about the trio and whether or not this was intended by the writing or the, or whatnot, is that Um, they're so laughable for so long and then the storyline ended this way. But like, if you go back, you going back and watching it again, I was struck by how the first red flags on this trio are like very early on, especially in season five with Warren about how you see like in real life, you see the seemingly PG ways these guys sort of remove consent and how that followed to its logical conclusion creates the havoc that season six ends up in.
2: Yeah. They feel entitled.
1: Right. Yeah. Like just creating these women bots mm-hmm. and, and all that just on its face. Like, it's like, Oh my God, they created a woman, bot. but then like you go into like, you just scratch the surface a little further. And you're like, wow. Yeah. Of course that ended up that way. Right.
2: Yeah. How do you, f- I'm, I'm curious since uh, the, I'm curious about how y'all feel about um, Andrew's closetedness. It's, Something I didn't
1: super want to I don't I don't know like it was it was something I wanted to bring up but like you know it was the first time I was ever on a podcast with Tom Link so I was like I don't really know um is um because like we were t- we were talking about how much Tom Link the actor person informed the character of Andrew which really if you're also talking about because it's never really explicit in any way shape or form that Andrew is queer or closeted it's just severely coded or it's also a mix of that plus Tom Link's just personhood coming through um, which he basically that said it, which is just like I'm like, I me mean, you know,
4: and the way that that heart. sort of uh,
1: like is made to look made,
4: made to make him look pathetic as well like even okay. within the context of this trio of deeply pathetic men he is the one that has mm-hmm. this sort of like unrequited crush on Warren because Warren well, is he's, the most masculine of the three of them um, right
1: he's Oh, the aesthetic of the prophetic. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's great. It's it's, great. It's, it's, and,
2: and it's supposed to be funny. And that right. makes it so hard to watch, yeah. especially when I'm like, oh, ha, ha, ha. Oh, wait, no. No, Kim.
1: Right. <laughs> and it, And eventually leading to the point where, like in season seven, he is treated like vermin by everybody in the house when everybody else in that house has slaughtered multiple people. <laughs> Um, and they're right. like, "Well, Andrew, what you did?" And they're just treating him like this, like dog shit, and like even Buffy, like just holding him by his neck and forcing him to cry over the seal. Like it was very, like it's, it's. There's um, this there's a there's a, a low key sadism there that is not lost on queer viewers. So,
4: mm-hmm. especially the way that Xander
1: like bullies him in season seven as well, and it's like, oh, this is a man
4: who makes Xander feel more secure in his own masculinity and like it's, it's
1: gross. Yeah. Like you can clock that everyone is clowning on Andrew Mm -hmm. mostly to feel better about themselves or more in control in some way. So you're like, I I've seen that in my real life. I do know what that looks like and what that means. So it's, it it doesn't get lost.
0: I'm a little bit more forgiving with Andrew only because the show had given us like if he was the only queer character on the show, I feel like I would have more of a gripe. Um, it's the same thing I think about Adam. I'm going to bring up a subject you and I hate talking about. Good,
1: Great. <laughs> can't wait. Ready to
0: go. Um, it's the same thing that I felt about. Um, I had this discussion at work actually about it. Chapter two where pe- I had people <sighs> say to me, well, like gay characters are allowed to be murdered too. And I'm like, right. But if the gay characters only exist as uh, hate crime victims who get murdered and eaten by a clown, then I don't like it. If there were like, and you know, at the end of the movie, sure, Bill Hader, there's like, Ooh, they're like kind of maybe like in love, but it's never explicitly said until by the end when
1: he writes and... Yeah. And like,
0: for me, that doesn't work. For me, it would work if like, Oh, Bill Hader's character was out from the beginning. So we always had a gay character. Maybe that hate crime affected him. Um, and we saw it not just like, kind of subtext and then like shoehorned in at the end that he writes it on a fence i'm okay with there being like gay characters that have bad things if there are other gay characters that don't just have bad things happening so i go back and forth with andrew because it's like we did get willow and tara that were like you know the one of the best couples on the show so like and like andrew was like i see where people because some people who have been on the podcast really hate andrew getting a redemption arc at all um and i do understand that Mm -hmm. but i i think the reason andrew's enjoyable is because tom lank himself is like very charming as adam and i saw on the round table like he's 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 charming and i think he makes andrew's arc a little bit more okay and also like i go i go to this all the time like the x-men have magneto and mystique join their team betray them and join their team and betray them
1: like 800 times it's not so like alien (laughs) I, I completely agree, Anne, And I think, like, but, but, I, you know, it, then you do get into some of the stuff there where you're like, cause the show is like an action y show. And then, sort of, the, you know, it's, it's one thing to have like um, these really kickass like, queer women in the show. And then you have like queer men. And like the, the stereotype with queer men is that they're absolutely weak. They can't handle a thing. They're spineless. They'll turn on you. Like, it's, it so I mean, again, it's playing into a lot of tropes um specifically I mean yes in general there are queer people but there has not been like any sort of queer mask character and it's and it and it is playing into like a lot of those things mostly accidentally I think um a lot of stuff is very subtextual there, and I but again again in general I enjoy Andrew I enjoy Andrew's storyline and I enjoy his season sevens I think a big highlight for me in season seven is Andrew's presence in that um and I th- I think with this one, I am totally okay with seeing, like, a queer man be part of these Gamergate guys, because it's time we call out our own presence in that. Um, so I think that's appropriate, but again, would super love it if there was some.
0: Yeah, and I mean, Jim, you, I think you would even text me about that. Mm-hmm like thinking about Andrew, like, mm, is this? And I'm like... Because
2: I enjoy I, his character this season, and then I feel like, um, am I, you know, in 2020, am I allowed to? You know, I, wor- I worry about stuff like that, yeah. One of the other things I wanted to bring up about the trio that I think is important and ties into... It's one of the things that holds the entire season together for me is the fact that they they don't have superpowers themselves. Yeah. Um, and that kind of, you know, comes with the very end of the season, you know, who saves the day? Xander. And Dawn, she's she's a normal human. Not really, actually, but, uh, you know, she doesn't have superpowers, but she can still fight beside me, you know, like that kind of thing. And I think Mm -hmm. that that, like, these human characters, even Willow, like, being a witch, but, you know, she, before she's a witch, she's a normal human. So she's a normal human obtaining superpowers in a way and then really not being allowed or able to use them. And this is why, but it's okay because normal people can have wins and can you know be strong and can be evil and can be you know very good too Mm -hmm. right and i do like i do like the
3: sheer like banality of their evil like we think that we should be in charge so we're gonna be in charge and like yeah they're not they're not demonic they're not inherently evil they choose to do evil acts because they feel entitled to it and i think that you know i think from a storytelling perspective that's a really interesting story and and I think that, yeah, when, when they functioned well, I think the trio were really interesting villains.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, it's weird. I think they're the, I think at the time I enjoyed them more when it aired only because it was like, oh, I'm nerdy too. Like I get these references. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Drew Greenberg said on our round table how he wrote in that Bubba Fett reference because that's a real action figure. And I remember being like, oh, my God, I know that they're talking about, like, the Bubba Fett action figure that was released before the movie came out. And it was like a prototype and it was a big deal and it was like a mail-in offer. And I knew exactly what action figure Spike was about to break to get them to help him. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and, like, I loved that shit. Um, but looking back, it's like I don't enjoy watching them. But like you said, it's like they're still they're well when they're well done, I still don't enjoy them, but it's like I can understand and appreciate that it is well done and well Mm -hmm. written. It's just that, you know, you hate them because you hate them. I
3: think I think another interesting thing they had was the sort of like differing levels of morality and and how that progressed through the season. Because in the beginning it was like, oh ha, -ha, we can be evil, this will be fun. And then you see like Warren's level of like depravity is so much lower Jonathan kind of has a conscience he eventually realizes like you know we really shouldn't be doing this stuff but it's more the betrayal of his friends that leads him to that and then and then yeah you know with with Andrew I feel a lot of I actually feel a lot of compassion for him I think again it's a it's a test of it's a it testifies to Tom Lang's strengths as an actor like I think he's just very charming and very likable um but but it is interesting because you've got that balance between them because they are human and they're all making choices that are objectively evil and then the way that plays out over the season was you know this is a very human season this is a season about humanity this is a season about the darkest parts of ourselves and the lowest parts of ourselves and what we do when we just sort of like give over to them um so i do like i like narratively i think they were the right villains
2: um and they're formidable. Like, yeah, I, I'm yeah. thinking of life serial when they just have no idea what's going on or who's causing it, mm-hmm. uh, particularly. And, I mean, obviously, they, they grow in strength, like, from, from that moment forward. But I think because they are just humans who, you know, get progressively eviler and eviler or not, depending on which character you're talking about, as was just pointed out, Um, they're, they're hard to predict. They're not, like, you yeah. know, yeah, a villain that has, like, an agenda and that's, this is the agenda and this is what I want to accomplish. Like their, their motives change. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Well then you can't go to like the library and read up on them. Mm-hmm, you're, mm-hmm. You're just like, Oh, they're just people. And it's that slowly boiling frog where you just realize that this could be you who makes these shitty choices. And that this could be your best friend who makes these shitty choices. And what do you do then? Do you stop them? Are you aware enough to stop them in time before they hurt somebody that seriously? Like it's, all very interesting stuff and I think I would love to see what a what a 2020 version of the season would be because I think obviously these villains are very prescient now and I think these villains now would hit like a ton of bricks um and uh, this sort of more mature really complicated genre storytelling would would be more friendly now and, and the format would be great like so i I think this is just all really good stuff that maybe the science experiment maybe was a little too ahead of its time because it was a little mm. too early to be fully formed.
0: And so speaking of the fact that it's very human, we also get Buffy getting her first her first job? Yeah, her first job.
2: Uh <laughs> with Double meat Palace. Well that's the first one she keeps. Doesn't she like work construction at some point earlier? Right, yeah, you life. Know, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. she works
0: for a magic box for like a day. But I mean okay. like her first job. Got
2: job. It.
0: Okay. Uh and I will say I had we had Anthony co-hosted with me. Carly Lane and Caleb Roerig were on, and they all love the episode. They love it, and they they sold me on it not being as bad as I view it. Um, I mean, I still don't love it, but it's definitely not as bad as I like. I keep it in a really like a spot of like, oh, I hate that Buffy episode, but I don't know that I do anymore. But I just don't know. So I couldn't keep track of the timeline. Like every time it would be like, oh, I think this is the last episode she works at Double Meat Palace, but there isn't really a. As then, as you were, she leaves Double Meat Palace because uh, Riley comes to town. But then we see that she's still working there later on. And i it's weird that, like, that was such a big thing and, like, gets its own episode. And then there's no, like, oh, she quit that job. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, I felt like there should have been an episode where she's like, I quit. This job sucks. Uh, and I would have liked that. I don't know. Um, or we could have gotten, like, okay, go full, like, whatever, and, you know, we see that one old lady who zones out twice. Like, give me more, like, hijinks. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I they love, either need to do less or more.
1: I mean, some of my favorite Buffy memories are, like, kind of, like, uh, of these early season Monster of the Week episodes that X-Files did really well, and Buffy did really well in its earlier seasons, and it just feels like one of those things where, like, in a less dreary season about more serious things, it would have maybe, like, been a lot more fun. Um, but, like it just feels like such an odd, like w- goofy thing in the middle of like. Because it does it happen? Does Double Me ha- Palace happen? Like literally the next like in the middle. Out? Well, does it happen? Like how soon after Warren kills his girlfriend does this happen? Like I feel like it's right
0: before. It, I think it's right, it's right before.
1: before it.
2: It is oh, yeah. Yeah. okay
1: because it's definitely like because that's such a moment where it's just like the show is changing.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, speaking of philip and i co-hosted that dead things together which is right after double meat palace and i think that i can now say with confidence that dead things is my least favorite episode of buffy because i mean philip and i talked about this but right it just retreads everything we've already done this season and there's no there's no moment of like it's all miserable. It's all miserable. Buffy thinks she murdered Katrina. Katrina's murder is miserable. Like, you know, it's like murder. a sexual assault that ends with a murder. It's so quiet. Um, like
1: it's just so quiet. Yeah. It's horrible.
0: And, and, it and like we get oh, Buffy crying to Dawn about having to go away. We get Buffy beating the crap out of Spike outside the police station. Ugh. It's Philip. Go ahead. I mean, sorry. <laughs> it's like
4: the, uh, you know how The Sopranos gets credited with like you know starting the golden age of television, where everyone just behaves terribly and and it's really gritty. Like oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say, this episode did that, where it's like, oh, this is like they're talking about serious subject matter, and I just find it really like it's sad. I'm bored and I'm annoyed and I'm upset. Um, because and this is the thing that every time I've come onto the the podcast for this season is I I, I say it, I'm like, I cannot remember which episode, which things happen in because it's just one huge blur of, of misery and, and dead things in particular, it just takes everything that has been like, subtext to this point about the depression and about warren's you know misogyny and and that kind of radicalized uh, toxic masculinity of, of the trio and it just sort of like it's like oh no we're gonna spell it out for you and we're gonna have a literal sexual assault murder we're gonna have like we're gonna blur the lines between sex and violence with buffy and spike even more uh, we're gonna have like one amazing use of uh bush and I, I stand by that one scene is very very nice, and everything else about it is just awful.
0: <laughs> and like Dawn cries, I just, I for me that's like when it's like, all right, we need to, we need to change course on this season, or I'm going to like fall asleep. Um, and they kind of do, um, because I think. So this is my issue with. Kirsten, I'll be curious what you think as someone who has written in the Buffy verse. But so I think this is my issue is that, and I know this is like true to real life. Like things after that episode seem to get a little bit better. We get older and far away, which is like a fun episode. You know, everyone's trapped in the house. They get that silly reveal of that it's how Fred She traps herself in the house. They get out. Um, we get as you were, which I do like Riley in that episode. Then we get Hell's Bells, and it's like, oh nope, shit's still terrible. Xander's <laughs> leaving Anya at the altar. Then we get normal again, where it's like, oh, Buffy's imagining everyone's not real. It's miserable again. And then entropy, where it's like, everyone is doing really awful things. Uh, and then, you know, Tara dies and it's misery from there. I don't I don't like the back and forth of like, okay, this episode, we overcame it.
1: Yeah. We had a good
0: ending. And then it's like, back to being miserable right again. And I get that's like true to real life. But the storytelling there, I'm like,
1: oh, come on, give me a break. Well like to, to what Philip was saying, like if you contrast this with something that is a very, very clear arc, if you think about season two, you can feel it when it's a pre Angelus episode. You can feel when it's a pre Jenny Callender's death episode. Like you can you tell when it's after that stuff. Like there, there are these little markers that are definitely very, very clearly we build up to it and then the storyline really pivots hard because everything is really amazing for Buffy in season two until the Angela stuff happens and then they manage to pull out of it and things get really good and then Jenny died. Like So there, there is sort of a you have to have the hills and valleys there and it's just definitely probably what this was missing.
2: I mean it goes with the the villains being humans uh, it, it it parallels what we are talking about before but it doesn't make it good storytelling even if it's you know there's a reason for it
3: yeah i mean it's definitely true to life like i i make the same mistakes over and over again in my life because like whatever those are my weaknesses i'm gonna have to keep learning the same lessons over and over and over again my entire life um which which is true but it's not satisfying to experience as a story right um like we want to see character progression if I'm watching a show and the characters keep learning the same lesson over and over again, I'm going to stop watching it because it's not interesting to me because I don't see character growth. Like, um, it was like glee glee. They would like learn some big lesson in an episode and the next episode would just like hit reset. Everybody's back to the same like baseline. Right. Um, and I I felt that same way with Dawn throughout Buffy, you know, Oh, Dawn's acting up because she wants attention. She's doing these bad things because she wants attention. Let's give Dawn more attention. Three episodes later, Dawn's acting up because she wants more attention. <laughs> oh, okay, well, let's give Dawn more attention. Okay, three episodes later. Like, oh my gosh, the Yeah, I feel
2: like that was one of like the weaker storylines in this season is like Dawn being a yeah. thief to get attention. I was like, this again. Yeah, they just didn't know what to do with her as a character, which
3: I understand. Like, I get it. Um, but But it is frustrating as a viewer when you see characters that you care about um, learning quote unquote the same lessons over and over again right coming to the same like emotional epiphanies over and over again um and so so yeah I think that's definitely one of the weaknesses of the season because you're right like there's nothing that necessarily triggers these these falls they just kind of keep rehashing the same the same errors the same drama and and it's it's frustrating as a viewer um because it, you feel
2: like I was gonna say even if you look at the dates, so sometimes like a season breaks in a weird place because, you know, it's like the end of the, the first third of the season and then the next episode is going to be two months later. Like even if I look at when like the breaks were, I'm like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. You know, it's like maybe we're being <laughs> too harsh because we don't understand how TV. No, no, it doesn't work.
0: We, I mean, Kim and I were on, Kim was on for Seeing Red. I think we had a pretty good discussion about it. Um But I feel like we should probably touch upon it. Um, I will say the thing, so so no one else has to say it. But I hate, hate, hate the way... So this season is a season where if I could change two things about this show, I would say Xander does not leave Anya at the altar, and they do get married. And I would say that Spike does not sexually assault Buffy. And those Um, two things
2: go above Tara's death, Interesting. I guess because of what we talked about, because who else are you going to... How else are we going to have this season? Okay. Uh,
0: And because... um, Not because, like, you know, of course there are character deaths that, like, I love those characters. I love Tara. I wouldn't want her to die. But narratively, I can at least be like, okay, narratively, that fits the narrative of where we're going. I don't think either of those things fit the narrative of the show. I don't think Xander leaving her, at Anya at the altar makes any bit of sense because he should have the the fact that he left her there and he wasn't like hey let's go somewhere else to talk let's tell willow and buffy that like the ceremony is canceled he just is like can't do this peace and then leaves her there by herself in her wedding dress i i know we rag on xander but for me that doesn't track with xander i don't think he would do that and again i don't I never need a sexual assault storyline in stuff like this. I, I I avoid it like the plague. When I saw that movie, um, the Hills Have Eyes and there was like mm. three rapes going on at once. I like got I felt like physically ill. Hills Have Eyes um, is
1: speaking of relentless, I just wanna sidetrack yeah. that movie is <laughs> Yes. <laughs> we should do a side yeah. pod on, on Just Hills Have Eyes and How Not Appropriate.
0: It's like there's like three rapes going on at once and the father is tied up and lit on fire at the same
1: time. It, it's just like... Yeah. T-
2: remind me never to watch that ever.
1: No. no it, yeah. And it's in the whole movie's premise because it was like released in like sort of first uh, first term W. Bush. Like the whole like, premise is like, well, this liberal guy married into a gun-toting republican family and he's so sensitive and And, oh look all see he's driven to murder with guns because he just was a fool like it's the whole thing is just like it's such an own the libs movie like it's just like we're gonna it's just like death wish like he just turns into this just maniac with a gun because of
0: and it's a guy who played pyro in the x-men movies it's like Uh... very weird um but yeah, and so for me, the like you just never need that. I never need No. I I just don't. And I the way they handled it, and I get it, people were mad at me and Kirsten, um mostly Kirsten, but um they were mad at us because the way Spike is written, he says bitch like eight times in reference to Buffy after he's going to get his soul. And I don't I get that the writer said. Yes, that was on purpose, but I don't think that makes it good writing. He said that Even so though much I love the writing of season
2: 2, which which really bothered me. Yeah, like mm. did people just talk like that know. back then and we forget? And, like, it was okay? I guess. Well, yeah, because
4: then you have the whole, uh, the, whole con- the the exchange between Buffy and Warren where he says, say goodnight, bitch. And then she says, goodnight, bitch. Which, actually, I at the time, I, th- I remember that thinking that was, like, a, a fun little oh, through. I,
0: I love that. Um, I love that because it's her saying it back. That's, that, that's the like, only time. But
4: even when she's saying that to him, it's still, like, employing misogyny as a, oh, you're a bitch because you're, like, weak. I'm calling you a weakling because you're a bitch. And it's like, it, it's still it's very two thousand two writing,
2: and it was better in Warren's mouth because of the misogyny than anyone else's. Well,
4: I think I, I, I can't. I think is that the only time that Buffy ever calls anyone a bitch, right? Like you can't. That, she's the hero of the show, and yes. it's a feminist yes. show.
3: It's, yeah, yeah,
4: it, it, it's I like oh, just stupid, called of
3: vapid horror. So, oh, you Yeah, that's true. Um, I, I'm not going to touch on the spike stuff at all, just because um, I'm not going to. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, I the Xander leaving Anya at the altar is such a perfect example of this this season moving people forward emotionally, giving them emotional epiphanies, and then completely hitting reset. Because in the episode before, you know, they built in that Xander's nervous about getting married. Xander isn't sure if he's ready to get married. Um, so they did the groundwork, but then you've got that beautiful scene between Xander and Anya sitting in the bathtub, acknowledging this wedding is going to be a disaster, but our marriage won't be. And like, that's the, that's the emotional resolution, right? To Xander's fears. Like, yeah, yeah. The wedding is going to be stressful and weird and crazy, but his relationship with Anya, the marriage that's going to exist, like that's good. And that's going to stay good. That's what they're going to fall back on. And then yeah, then very and then in the wedding episode they just undo all of that, and it is it's just so frustrating as a viewer because they give you those moments of like, okay they're growing up okay they get it and then the next episode they take it away from you in really unsatisfying ways and so um, yeah so that was just like the, yeah I I agree with Ian like that it, Xander leaving Willow at the altar Xander leaving Anya at the altar Xander should have left Willow at the altar that that, that would have been appropriate um, but. But Xander leaving Anya at the altar was just so frustrating, and I I remember, and I can't quote what which interview, but I remember, I want to say it was Joss Whedon said I had to do that because happy relationships aren't interesting, and I just disagree so strongly with that. because like, there's so- I agree with your disagree. Yeah, yeah. There are just so many other ways that you can in in invest tension that you can you know you can create drama that isn't. I guess we have to dismantle this one healthy good relationship because um, you know they had relationship issues there would still have been issues um that you could explore and
4: uh it's it's done in such a, a sort of lazy I, again gendered way where it's like oh you know playing on the like kind of flaky male commitment phobia or what the stereotype of that that was much more prevalent maybe you know sort of 15 years ago and and, then, and 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 the flash forward being, oh, you're gonna be married to Anya, and she's gonna nag and you. And they even and
2: come back to that forever. in a later episode.
4: Yeah, it's it, it, it's just like, it, it it's like, oh god, if, if 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 literally that is all it took to to scare Xander away, then he was not, he was never married to Tyrion in the first place.
2: Really. <laughs> I also didn't like how, in like a couple episodes later, they had Xander be like, well, let's be in a relationship, but just not get married, like as though oh, marriage so is like this uh this thing that that's going to completely change their relationship you know like uh it's just that that really bothered me in terms of Who
1: proposed the first yes yeah <laughs> it's just it's not good dramatic irony like it's just because it's again you always want to like make the audience expect something and then do the and then do like you want to like say like is it a or b and then you give them c like it's every choice. I guess Kirsten said was just like they telegraphed it early what they were going to do, and then you were waiting for them to do something un- su- something surprising, unexpected, and then they just did the same thing that they told you seventeen episodes ago they weren't going to do.
0: <laughs> yeah, I yes, um, I just and and I, like I said, I know we rag on Xander a lot, but I just I don't think Xander, I don't think it tracked with Xander that he would do that because that seemed i I believe that him and Anya I, they loved each other, and I don't know that he would do that to someone he loved. Like it just it all feels unnecessarily cruel. And also, I mean, Kirsten, you said earlier, like in once more a feeling, Xander has lived on the hellmouth for however many years at this point. and it's like he's gonna let a demon with like a trick can conv- like be the push to make him not do it, even though we just resolved that issue in the episode prior. And it just feels like Xander would have like understood like, oh, this is a trick, or even talk to Willow about yeah. it to be like, hey, this guy just showed me a vision of the future. Yeah, uh, oh yeah.
3: And that and I that Xander know. would even do the whole like touch the orb thing. Like, no, you in Sunny right, deal. Yeah. Some dude shows up and is like, <laughs> hey, touch the <laughs> orb. Uh no. Like even if you didn't live in Sunny Deal, you still wouldn't do that. But
4: yeah, no. <laughs> I wouldn't touch the stranger. What, what's very so frustrating about it as well is that Xander's entire storyline from season five all the way through season six is that compared to Willow and Buffy, he out of the gang is the one that actually is like a functioning adult. He's the one that has a full time job. He's the one that's grown up and has become secure in himself. Um, you know, The Replacement was a brilliant episode that kind of pushed his character forward loads. And then, so this, to have this happen sort of, you know, a a full year and a half later, kind of like, like you say, it just sort of completely undermines all of the writing that they've done for him for two years.
0: So then we get to Dark Willow. I know that we've talked about all the issues, but I do love Dark Willow. I'm not going to lie. I think Alison Hannigan, I mean, we discussed this already there. I, I wish there was a different way we could have gotten there, but I, I love the idea of this queer character going through processing her trauma through rage and she's like allowed to just be like fully bananas unhinged and like going for it. There's something about that that feels, I don't know that I, I like seeing this queer character get to be this all powerful villain, but like, you know, quote unquote, I, I don't love, I feel like by the final episode and Kim and I discussed this, they kind of lose the plot of like, oh, Willow's doing this because she's grieving. It's kind of like, she's just like, oop, I'm going to end the world because it kind of needed to go big because it's a season finale. But other than that, I really, I think Alison Hannigan is doing some of her best acting. Um, She, yeah, she, she is very good at expressing like her face is flat, but you can tell she's grieving. She's enraged. Um, You can feel all of those emotions going on there. And I, I don't know, and she's fucking great as Dark Willow.
1: She is so good. It, I almost wish that, I mean, I, since we're doing some revisionist work on this <laughs> round table, um, I, like, my point of view would just be like, I would love to have seen this be the whole back half of the season the way Angelus was a back half of the season bad guy, and see what they did with, like, imagine if the trigger for Dark Willow wasn't Tara's death, but was um, at the end of, like, smashed where Tara just leaves her um, and it just, and just her being dumped and her feeling like going back to that season one mentality um, she had. And that all of her friends, all of her, you know, straight cis friends don't super understand and don't like, and again, you, you bring up, if you want to tap into queer rage, you tap into, um, you feel breakups harder. You feel like cause there's, a, there's so much more baggage going on. There's so much more fear at play, and it takes you to this place of weakness that really scares you. And a lot of times, to get rid of those feelings, you double down on it and you embrace this really negative, power raging personality type. And I could see that being a, a very interesting trigger for Willow's Darkness so that there wasn't someone dead. It just was she went full hog into this drug den mentality and then she started actively plotting against all of her friends who Buffy wasn't grateful enough that she she'd saved her life and that you know Xander was flopping you know you know like she could have just there's other maybe motivators for that um, and I would have been very interested to see her be a big bad for the second half of the season where you were able to not just do this sort of, you know, because it was week by week, you wouldn't have to do this relentless storytelling. But maybe see what would it be like with Dark Willow not part of the group, plotting in the background, plotting something big.
4: And oh my God, to have a, a maybe wouldn't just it, yeah. a scene where Willow tells Buffy about herself because that was in, an incredibly satisfying scene where she's like, "Oh, I'm just going to kick your ass. You're so righteous. You've been, You've had, This is a long time coming." Um, to have that sort of you know the, that you know Willow, who's always been the the quietest. Um, you know, friend, to actually just, like, actually to start, to show up for herself and vocalise how unsupportive uh, Buffy was when she came out,
1: you know, and and, she, and to, to show that she's been holding on to that for all this time. <laughs> and, and to, to view potentially killing Buffy as that well you were dead and it's because of me that you were brought back and so I can very easily take care of you again I mean the in the comics in season eight comics there was like a, the one of the few i I did read there was there was a moment where um uh willow does like kind of confess to Buffy that she does sometimes wish she had left her dead because then Tara would still be with her and so that could be something else
2: having a full-blown dark willow for longer too, would both soften the terribleness and the heavy handedness. That's the word I'm looking for of the addiction metaphor and also strengthen it at the same time because she never really, I don't know, in my, in my opinion, the, the bad doesn't necessarily outweigh the good, like except with her treatment of Tara, Um, you know, she can do so much. Like she, she has this power, she has this knowledge and I'm you know, maybe I maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the bad does outweigh the good and everyone's gonna tell me that. But uh I still think having a longer, full more fully blown dark willow would strengthen like, okay, no, like this is not good for her. Uh and then we could mm. play that better. And I, I don't know, I just really didn't like the the heavy-handedness at times of the addiction metaphor, because it felt like, oh, you know, you're just having fun or you're actually just helping the gang, like maybe just as much or more than you're using it in a negative way, and to also
4: make the gang aware of how complicit they are, you know, because they've lent so heavily on Willow using her magic to to help them, that they've they've played a part in uh, developing this problem as well.
3: I do. I I will say it, and I talked about this in, in the episode, but I really, really do admire in in the whole Dark Willow progression that the writers did not make an effort to soften her actions. Like they, because they very easily could have done some sort of out where Willow goes to kill Warren, but then she hesitates and he does something where he's going to kill her. And so she lashes out in self-defense and that's how she kills him. Um, Which is what, what storytellers tend to do with female characters because they don't want them to be outright murderers. So they give them a like, well, they had to make that choice. They had no other options. And I love that Willow has, a lot of other options, and she chooses that. Um, and I think that, that was I think that was a legitimately brave choice on the part of the writers, um, to go that far. Uh, and I think it's I think it's really interesting, and yeah, and, and I like Dark Willow. I like that Dark Willow doesn't question it, she does it, and then she moves on. Um, and so yeah, I think it would have been interesting to have like a longer Dark Willow arc. Um who she becomes when she strips away sort of those inhibitions and um, that that sort of veneer of of niceness and of shyness and of quietness um, and becomes just sort of this creature of of rage and of of power. Um, but yeah, I, I I think that is one of my favorite things about this season is is that particular scene where she kills Warren. That the writers. Cause they they weren't pulling punches the whole season and i'm glad that when it came to that they didn't decide to to hold back mm. they just went for it
1: and doesn't just kill him like oh yeah him. Like, just like in, the, in, the, in a in a in a very gruesome and then yeah. they show it they don't they don't just cut away nope it, it, it's a it's a it's a murder
3: yeah it's a straight up murder it's an execution yeah
0: yeah 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 and I, I think I said this on the episode too, Kirsten, I remember watching it with my friend and being like, oh, well, like, obviously Willow's not going to kill Warren, yeah. they're not going to let her kill, like, kill a yeah. guy. And then like, ooh, putting on clown makeup, I was wrong, like, they sure did let him, let her kill him. Uh, and that was, even then, that was like, I, I can remember, like, gasping, I being like, holy shit, she like, ripped his skin off, like, yeah. oh my god, and then lit him on fire.
1: I mean, it's something that, like, a decade later, everyone would be like, oh, my God, about in Breaking Bad. And I'm like, well, we went there before. Right. (laughs) This
4: is what I'm saying. Season six of Buffy was the original anti-hero prestige drama. It's true. It's
0: true. (laughs) Love that. Um, Okay, so now that we're here at the end of the season, um, what's our... I mean, I know what me and Tiersen's answers are going to be, but Tiersen, uh, what's your favorite episode of the season?
3: Uh, um, I just, I really I love Tessa. I, I love a, we forgot who we are trope. It's amazing. Yep.
0: Hmm. All right.
3: Yeah.
0: Uh,
1: Adam? Um, we didn't talk about it, but I really love, uh, I think one of my favorite moments in the whole thing in that episode, like the episode that follows it is uh, when Giles comes back. Um mm-hmm. and just seeing sort of the energy that he brings back to the show, like it's just the characters are as relieved as the audience that dad is back. Um and uh just that whole Giles versus Dark Willow, um, ten minutes yeah. up in the opening of that of that second <laughs> of villains was is just too good.
0: Uh, Philip,
1: uh, I'm basic and I
4: love the musical. <laughs> I just, it's, I mean, it, it it's great because it, it really taps into all of the dark themes of the season, you know, the depression and the isolation, uh, but also, like, the songs are all bangers, and the filmmaking, it makes you feel like you're watching an old, you know, Fred Astaire movie, Um, it's just like, yeah, it, it it's like, it's, we'll sing about our, our bad feelings and be entertaining, it's the Steven Universe of uh, season eight.
1: <laughs> I was going to say, it's like Crazy Ex-Girlfriend before it's time. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. About depression. Yeah. Yeah, like... <laughs> exactly. <And the laughs> yeah. Is
3: that Buffy fans now, anytime any show does their musical episode, we can be like, oh, Buffy did that first. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I love doing that. Did it, uh, did uh, Buffy best. did that first, right?
0: <laughs> and almost always the the other thing you follow up with is, and Buffy did it better. And <laughs> Buffy <laughs> <laughs> did it better. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, Kim, what's your favorite episode?
2: I'm going to go with once more with feeling as well. Yeah. Like I, I, I love the way that it, the the reveals that happen, I think in the episode, the it just makes them better than any other way they could have done them. And I do, I'm team Spike, so I love the, there's actually, they have a nice kiss at the end, unlike most of their other uh, sexual interactions or romantic and quotation marks interactions throughout the rest of the season. Like that's a really just genuine, like nice, kiss that happens there. So, you know, being Team Spike,
0: I do love that as the ending to the app. And 100% same with me. I I can remember like watching that episode and like loving it and then like completely gasping when they finally cuz like it's it's literally a musical kiss, right? Like the mm-hmm. music swells, <laughs> they kiss, and then the fucking curtains close. Like it's so good. <laughs> um and how do we grade this season overall? Uh Philip Oh
4: gosh! I mean, there's there's the effort and intention, and then there's the execution, right? <laughs> so I, oh, and 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 that's what we just making saying, you know, the, the the highs are so high, and the lows are so low. I think it's going to be just like a solid B minus. Okay, uh, Adam
1: C plus for the same reasons. I'm a <laughs> harsher critique. Cheers. Uh, <laughs>
0: um, I'm going
3: to read the professor who's like, look. I really care about you. You've been an amazing student up until this point. I understand that this semester you're going through some really severe personal issues. So I'm going to give you (laughs) you a pass fail and give you a pass. Um, And if you ever need a letter of recommendation, let me know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Lovely.
2: Uh, Kim? I I feel like we're on the C C plus, B minus. Like, oh, God, I'm going to have to get someone else to look at this to tell me if I'm making the right decision because I don't want to give them you know, the, the C plus when I really deserve the B minus and I'm letting my feelings get in the way. Um, but knowing myself, I'd probably go with B minus because of all that. Okay,
0: that's fair. Um, <laughs> more
2: about more about me than, than the, the show, but yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: I, I think I would give it, I think I would say B minus, honestly, because yeah, the same reasons everyone else said, but I'm, I'm like teetering between a B and a B minus. Because again, yeah, like Philip said, the the lows are so low, but the highs are so high. And I love the musical. I love Tabula Rasa. um, And even the episodes, like I said, that I revisited for the podcast this season, like Double Meat Palace and even Normal Again, there were two episodes that going into the season, I was like, oh, I hate them. I Once we talked about them on the podcast, you know, Ty Mitchell convinced me and Philip both that like, okay, Normal Again isn't as bad as we thought it is. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, but then there's episodes like Dead Things where it's like, I forgot this episode existed and I hate it. Um, so <laughs> I think, yeah, I go with a B minus. Um, yeah. Thank you all for joining me for the end of season six and for sticking around so much for this bleak as hell season. You,
2: all you, four did, of you it. did. Hooray. Yeah. 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 Finally. Finally.
0: Finally. <laughs> Never again. Um, and thank you all for listening. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you mean you don't want to immediately start revisiting season six after this, (laughs) Kirsten? (laughs) Uh, Thank you all for joining us. Thank you all for listening. If you liked Slayer Fest 98, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, Podbean, Google Play, and other places podcasts are found. If you want to support us, you can find us on Patreon, where you can get access to our private Facebook group and mini episodes that are exclusive to Patreon. And if you want to follow us on social media, we are at SlayerFestX98. And I am at IanXCarlos because I'm consistent with branding on all my social media. Uh, Kirsten, where can everyone find you?
3: Uh, you can find me at kirstenwhite.com, on Twitter at, at Kirsten White, or at your local independent bookstore.
1: Ooh, and Adam, where can everyone find you? Everyone can find me at, uh, on Twitter at the Adam Sass. And you can pre order my upcoming debut novel, Through to Your Sons, out in September.
0: Yay. And Philip, where can everyone find you? Uh,
1: you can find me on Twitter at
4: Philip underscore Ellis. That's Philip with one L, Ellis with two. And Kim?
2: I'm at Kim and Joe South, no extra ease, and Kimberlyandsouthwick.com.
0: All right, cool. And we'll see you all next time. Bye. 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 Bye.